0: Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. So we're in 1 Corinthians. This is part three of 1 Corinthians. And uh, still talking about uh, a little bit about sex and marriage, and we'll move into something else here. Real quick, uh, when we open 1 Corinthians we were reading about how Paul was reminding them of his time there and everything he had invested in their lives during the year and a half that he lived and ministered there, everything he poured into them, the truth he imparted, and the foundation he gave them. Uh, And then he starts uh, correcting them. He chastises them for the divisions and the arguing and the competition among them, you know, arguing about silly things like who got baptized by who, uh, thing, and, and Paul's reminding them that this is all Jesus. God is the one who gets the glory for all of this, and uh, offers them some more corrections along that line, and then urges them to humbly accept these corrections via letter. Uh, to, you know, he's already sent Timothy ahead of him, and so he's communicating this stuff. And he says, you know, get this stuff in order before I get there. I want I want it to be when I get there that we can just enjoy a happy family reunion. But if you don't have this stuff straightened out when I get by the time I get there. I'll straighten you out when I get there. I'll come with a rod, he says, like a father coming to discipline his children. Uh, and then he spends some time uh, addressing sexual immorality in the church, uh, one particular case, actually, and telling them this has to be judged. Uh, it's, uh, our call to love one another does not mean we tolerate this stuff in the midst of the body. It's not our job to go out there and picket what the world is doing, but in the church we have to address these things. There is such a thing as as church discipline, and we don't tolerate this uh, sexual immorality in the church. Uh, And then he starts talking about lawsuits of all things, saying that it's shameful that a body of believers who all claim to have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, can't handle these matters internally, that we ought to be able to get together with the wisdom that's available to us through the Spirit of God and arrive at a godly conclusion rather than drag each other to court, a court comprised of people who do not have good judgment. And this is where when he lists those those sins, including several uh, varieties of sexual immorality, he's saying it in that context. You want to take a legal matter before the Gentiles who don't even have any sense when it comes to basic righteousness. These are people who embrace, who are so characterized by sins like uh, not just idolatry and extortion and covetousness, but homosexuality, homosexuality, adultery, and fornication. He says if they don't have any better judgment than to live their lives like that and not see anything wrong with it, why do you want to trust them with judgments when it comes to legal matters in your life. You guys can deal with this internally. And then he brings it back around to the seriousness of sexual sin, talking about the difference between legitimate pleasures and illegitimate ones. This is when he says, uh, he starts off by saying, look, all things are are legal for me, uh, but not all things are profitable. And we know, and we, we, we spent a little bit of time last week, remembering that he couldn't possibly be saying that everything is legal for him Murder's not legal for him he's just talking about again these doubtful things but then he says for instance food is for the stomach and the stomach's for food all right so there and, and, and he'll talk a little bit I don't think we're gonna quite get there today in chapter eight but when he starts talking again like we saw in Romans about meat that's been sacrificed to idols He says, this is what the stomach is for. So I understand there's some disagreement about what kind of foods you can eat. I'm not going to be mastered by my stomach. However, when it comes to sexual sin, you have to understand that's not what your body is for. The body wasn't made for sexual immorality. And so you can't compare those things. You can't say, well, hey, this is just a a preference. Uh, some, Some people like to eat meat sacrificed by idols. Some people don't. Uh, let's just don't judge one another. Same thing with sexual immorality. And Paul says, no, the food was, uh, stomach was made for food, and, the foo- and food for the stomach. That's not the way it is with sexual immorality. So then he starts talking about uh, the proper expression of sex which, uh, uh, among believers, which is only, of course, in marriage, between one man and one woman. Now, this is in a culture you and I now, When we look at this, we are looking at what he's about to say. Uh, in a culture that really celebrates marriage and family we've elevated those things and we should these are gifts from God right and so because of that because of our you know this is a living word family church and because of uh, how we honor and esteem marriage and family it makes it kind of hard to read what Paul is writing here Uh, because in a nutshell Sure looks like what he's saying is look marriage is a distraction from kingdom work. This is all about Jesus. And if you're truly spiritual you will remain unmarried. But since sexual desire is so strong, go ahead and get married so that you don't con- so that you don't commit the sins of fornication and adultery. This seems to be Paul's attitude about marriage. Look, if you really 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 want to be 100% sold out to the kingdom just remain as you are because marriage is going to pull away. You're, it's going to divide your attention, divide your passions. However, it's super important that you remain sexually pure. So, and since the sex drive is so strong, go ahead and get married because you don't want to fall into that sin. But then he just kind of continues to make the case, but it's better. You know, but you've got to read when he says, this is me, not God, this is God, not me. uh, But he he lays this down there like the only legitimate reason for marriage is not falling into sexual sin And that hardly seems like a firm foundation for marriage But the next thing he talks about is the importance of taking your marriage vows seriously Paul really does hold marriage in high esteem You don't when he starts talking about uh, Divorce you don't get to just leave your spouse when it gets hard when it gets unpleasant. This is a vow before god and, they, he's, and he's saying this in a culture where even among the Jews uh, and, and, in this, and and perhaps in the early church there in Corinth, everybody, and, and certainly the, the Roman and the Greek culture, ev- divorce was just casual. It was rampant. Eh, we don't want to be married anymore. Don't be married. And Paul's like, no, um, this is going to be a distinction among believers. When you get married, that's a vow before God. You take it very, very seriously. You don't get to just leave. Now, he spends the rest... The bulk of the rest of chapter 7, making the case that we are better off not being married. But the key to understanding this passage, because, you know, and we, and we talked about what he just said. Yeah, you're you're going to, your interests and your passions and your priorities are going to be divided between God, your wife, your family. There's urgency here in ministry. So there's two, there's two keys to understanding his take on this. And they don't 100% get us off the hook. There's still some hard things to hear here, but let's look at what he says because the first key is in chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. And he says this, Now concerning virgins, talking about unmarried women, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. There's a phrase in there that says, the present distress. I want you to think about the world Paul lived in when he wrote this. There was intense persecution on the church. I mean, Christians really, literally were being imprisoned and killed for their faith. And Paul is saying, I I, I guess I would paraphrase it this way, marriage is tough. And anybody who's been married any length of time knows there are challenges no matter how deep your love is for your spouse. There are hard things. To do this right, to remain committed, we have to make hard decisions. It's going to be hard enough anyway. And Paul's saying, considering the climate we are in right now spiritually, that's going to be an added burden. If you are single and pursuing God, you've got a lot of stress in this. There's this present distress. And if you suddenly have a spouse to think about, how is that going to affect, for instance, your boldness, your obedience? It's one thing to say, I'll go wherever God tells me to go. It's another thing to say, I'll take my family there too. I'll put my wife at risk. I'll put my children at risk. Or I will leave my family and my, uh, my wife and children for extended periods of time while I pursue the will of God. It's going to make things tougher. Now, Hayford, and I'm not sure I agree with him. Who am I to disagree with Hayford? But uh, Hayford's notes on this passage, he says that Paul's not talking about any particular era or period of persecution. But that what Paul's talking about includes the day and the age that we live in. He's not talking about any particular intensity, just the urgency of the last days, which began back then and continue to this day. Uh, and there is some truth to that, okay? I get it. We all have uh, a call on our lives. God has a plan. He has a ministry for every single one of us. It's made, It's very, very clear all through Scripture. And it's going to be easier. It, it's... It, it's easier to travel light, and decisions are, are easier to make when we don't have to worry about how these decisions are going to affect everybody else. Uh, but again, he stresses, it's not a sin. Just, he said, I'm just trying to spare you trouble. And all woven all through this is Paul's concern that we don't lose a sight of the prize. What is most urgent in this day and hour? And there are things about being married that's going to to cause us more pain when we suffer that persecution because it suddenly doesn't just affect us. And it's going to make it harder sometimes to obey God quickly. Keeping that in mind, it really flows nicely into this next passage, which begins in verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world and how he may please his wife. There is a difference between the wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be both holy in, in body and in spirit. May be holy both in body and in spirit, but she who is married cares about the things of this world and how she may please her husband and this i say for your own profit not that i may put a leash on you but for what is proper that you may serve the lord without distraction now that if you try to read the next few verses without reading what we just wrote you come away with a horrible picture uh of biblical marriage because he starts talking about uh if a father has a virgin daughter and uh He's thinking the flower of her youth is passing. Is it okay to marry her off? And we're thinking, well, you know, that father doesn't get to make those decisions. Come on. It's got to be up to the, the man and the woman who are getting married. And that's, I get it. But this is the culture. I mean, this is the, 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 the most uh, effective application of that, the whole, fa- uh, and, and Paul says, hey, look, you're not sinning by allowing her to marry. You're not sinning by giving her in marriage. Uh, but it's best Again, in view of this present distress, in view of everything else, uh, you're also not sinning by not marrying her off. And you say, well, marry her off, that sounds so bad. Uh, I, I would equate that. I, our application as fathers and mothers would be, are we going to give our blessing to this? Again, a lot of people don't even care about that anymore. It's more like, hey, we're going to get married with you, blessed or not. But as a formality, I'll ask your blessing. And sometimes they don't, they don't ask blessings. People just elope, whatever. But as Christians... Parents, we ought to be involved in that. We ought to be able to give our approval, and we ought to be bold enough to voice our disapproval in certain cases. And Paul is saying this. Look at what's important here. I want the woman and I want the man to be able to serve God freely. And if marriage is going to interfere with that, Fathers, you are not doing your daughters any favors. If you're just worried about her becoming a quote-unquote old maid, there are worse, way worse things than that. Because as the main thing is that all women and all men serve God wholeheartedly. Now, if they can get married and do that, praise God. But it's better to remain single and single-minded than be married and double-minded. doesn't mean that if you're married, you're double-minded. It means it's very, very important who you marry. And parents, it's very, very important who your children marry. I talked about this last week. Because I see it way too much. Our priorities are upside down in this. You know, the main thing is, find that spouse. And we think, you know, we have find a husband, find a wife. And, okay, I'm a believer, so here's the line I'll draw. I will not marry a non-Christian. Uh, and that's it. I had a... Uh, friend well a co-worker down in uh, when i was a ramus student i was working at this grocery store and a uh, woman who's a little bit older than i was she was a cashier and she she came up to me one night on break and said i, are you, I heard you're studying for ministry i said yeah that's right i'm a ramus student i think that's wonderful i said oh, are you a believer she goes yes I said, where do you go to church? Well, I go to a Baptist church uh, here in Broken Arrow. I said, uh, okay, that's cool. And so we talked about it. She goes, oh, I just think that's so great. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's just one of the best things somebody can do. And I just love the Lord and I love the ministry and I'm so proud of you. I'm so, uh, you know, saying all these great things. And I said, well, that's, that's interesting. And then I, I got to thinking, you know, this was a very American looking woman, but she had a, a, a last name that, that sort of evoked uh, Middle Eastern descent. So uh, but, you know, I said, are you married? She goes, yes. I said, okay, so uh, whatever her last name was, I don't remember. Uh, I said, that's your, that's your husband's name. I said, where's he from? Well, he's actually from, uh, uh, what'd she say, uh, Lebanon, I think, Lebanon, somewhere in the Middle East. I said, so is he, uh, did he come from a Muslim background? And she said, oh, he's actually still a Muslim. So did you, did you get saved after you met him? No. No, I was, uh, I was born and raised a Baptist. And you knew he was a Muslim when you married him. Yeah? And she's looking at me like, why these questions? I said, uh, wow, does that, does that bother you? Why should it? I said, well, your husband is, is walking in darkness. No, he's not. Just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean he needs to be. I said, well, one of you is wrong. She goes, that's not true. And listen, I've heard this a million times since then, but this is the first time I ever heard anybody say it to me. Just because Christianity is true for me doesn't mean it's true for him. Look, talking to me like I'm an idiot. And clearly she's the idiot. <laughs> I, I mean, I was dumbfounded. How can you think? I've said, I've said it before. You've heard it. My goodness, I don't know how many times you, you could have possibly heard this from me. Just looking at it logically, mathematically, whatever, keeping the spirit, uh, the spirit out of it, you know, it is possible mathematically for everybody to be wrong, for maybe nobody to have the truth. It is absolutely impossible for everybody to be right. We can't all be right. If Christianity is true, Islam is false. If Christianity is true, Buddhism is false. These things, there are too many contradictions. They're not just, oh, they're all just different sides of this, different views of the same mountain. That's hogwash. It doesn't work that way. And I'm thinking, how does it, and yet, happily married. Now, she's serving God single-mindedly? I had a hard time believing she was. But here's what we see. Most of us know better than that. You know, we are probably not going to marry somebody of a completely different religion. But we kind of treat it, Like a box to be checked off. Uh, Really like this guy. Really like this girl. Main thing is find out, is she saved? Is he saved? They are great. They're a candidate. They're a legitimate candidate for marriage. So now let's look at the stuff that's really important. I've heard this from people that are precious to me. Well, he treats her really well. Treats her and the kids really well. He's built a good home for them. And he makes a great living. Is he leading his household in conscious acknowledgement of God? Is he? Well, she's a dedicated mother. And she's got a great job. She's so good for him. Is she raising her children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? If she's not I don't care how many soccer games and parties and school functions. I don't care how good the, the her kids grades are because she's such a good homework help. I'm not saying those things don't matter. I'm saying in the grand scheme of things they don't matter if these other things aren't in order. And the money thing, I don't care. Makes a lot of money? Provides well for the family? Where's the tithe? Where's the treasure? What kind of finan- from a spiritual standpoint, what kind of f- financial foundation are you building for your family if you are not tithing and bringing your offerings? These are commandments. The bottom line is this. You need to know who you are in Christ, and you can't afford to settle for someone who doesn't know who they are in Christ and doesn't appreciate who you are in Christ. Marriage is a gift from God. It really is. I personally hold it in higher regard than Paul seems to. But the reason I'm able to do that is that God has blessed me with a wife who loves Jesus more than she loves me. God has blessed me with a wife who doesn't mind that I love Jesus more than I love her. Do you remember the illustration? I shared the, you know, I found the coin, I found the piece of last week, right? He who finds a wife finds a good thing. You can, you can get off track, the course that God has for your life. You can spend an awful lot of time wandering around looking for a wife and say, finally found her, I found a good thing. And it can take you a long time to get back on track. The right way is to stay on track and you encounter that wife along the way. She's already on the same path. He's already on the same path, ladies. Don't sweat that stuff. And that's what Paul is saying. He's not against marriage. I really don't think he holds it in low regard. In fact, you'll see here just in the next chapter where he talks about, hey, you know what? I should be able to bring a believing wife along with what I'm doing. But because of the need, the neediness of immature congregations like the Corinthians, he felt he was doing more for the kingdom of God by remaining single. It was just, but it was a sacrifice. Most of us in this culture aren't willing to make that sacrifice. I do want to please God, but I will have this kind of life. The main thing is, I want a husband, I want a wife, I want a family, I want a house, two cars, this, that, and the other. And God suddenly becomes this, and, and, and this is a, <laughs> and it's, it's kind of a function of, a, uh, of people with a lot of leisure time, In safe communities, in other words, it's a very Western view of Christianity, where we sort of treat Christianity as something that rounds us out. Just sort of fills in some gaps when really what's it supposed to be? It's supposed to be the center, isn't it? Jesus be the center of it all. Christ, we cannot be Christians if Christian is just one more thing on a list of adjectives that describe us, I know I've told this story several times, but I also know it's been a while, and I'm about done. And I want to share it anyway. Uh, this was in seventh grade, very first day of school, maybe second day of school, but I think it was the first. And we had a, there was a brand new teacher; it was her first year teaching, and she said, "I want to get to know you, class." And so I want you to make a list for me. Put your name at the top of this paper so I know who you are and tell me and write down. And it's like she gave us a number, five things, ten things that describe you. One word. And she says, for instance, and she she writes, my name is, shared her name, and I am. And she goes, and here's the thing. I want you to, to the best of your ability, rank these things. In other words, I am first and foremost. And she writes, I am a Christian. I'm like, and I was thrilled because I was a new Christian myself. Christian teacher, I am a Christian, I am a wife, I am a mother, I am a daughter, I am a teacher, and so on. You start with what's at the very core of defining, and then you rank these other things. I contrast that with, I, I've always remembered that, because it just, it really, it really hit home with me, that's who I am, I am a Christian. Christian. Everything else, kind of, and I happened to be something else. Contrast that with a, with a concert I went, also in my early days, as the f- first concert I went to it was a big Christian concert. There were several singers, and, uh, and uh, the artist who closed it out uh, got up, and he was a very, very well-known country singer who had just released a very successful Christian album. But this was a Christian concert, and he comes out, and opens his set with his biggest country hit. And I, mean, I, was, and I was offended, and this was long before the, the, I'd heard any of these seminars about the evils of secular music, and, and a lot of that stuff was, turned out to be silly. But I still saw this as very inappropriate. This is Sunshine Festival 79 or something like that, S-O-N-shine, right? And he had all these Christian acts, including the Imperials in the rust days when they were at the top of their game. And I've always described it. This was really an Imperials concert, no matter who else was there. 18-year-old Amy Grant was there with just her guitar, maybe 17-year-old Amy Grant, right before she hit it huge, all right? And, uh, and then this guy comes out at the end, and he clearly thought this was a... do won't say who it was, but he comes out, and he really thought this was about him. And it really wasn't. A lot of people were leaving because, hey, the Imperials have already sung. That's who we really wanted to hear. And he came out, and he starts singing his country hit, and then people start leaving in droves because they sure didn't come to hear that. And he's oblivious to it, and he says, you know... People ask me all the time, when did you become a Christian singer? But I'm not a Christian singer. I'm a country singer. I just happen to be a Christian. Now, I get what he's saying, and it didn't offend me deeply, but even as a, what, a freshman, freshman in high school, I could see that that was wrong. You are not a singer or a football player or an artist or a factory worker, or a business leader, or a father, or a husband, or a mother, or a daughter, or anything who happens to be a Christian, you are a Christian. You are in Christ. It is who you are. It is your identity. Do you understand that this is exactly what separates Christianity from practically every other religion in the world? Every, all these world religions are simply disciplines. They are ways of living your life rather than an identity. And Jesus is the one who made this startling claim. When you follow me, when you trust me with your life, what do I give you? Purpose? Yeah. Yeah. Do I give you a destiny? Yeah. What do I give you? I give you a new heart, a new life that's so radically different. The only way to describe it is this. The old you died, and you were raised to new life in Christ. How can we treat that as anything like a side issue? This is at the heart of Paul's teaching on marriage. We can get hung up on a couple details Uh, That will derail us from seeing what Paul's heart here is and his heart is there's nothing wrong with getting married And it's great because God clearly created us with these desires that only find their proper expression in marriage So fine get married fathers if you've got a daughter, there's nothing wrong with seeing that she gets married, but make sure that she's marrying somebody who will not derail her following Christ same way with guys. Don't get so starstruck by a woman's beauty or anything else she has to offer that it's going to get your focus off Jesus Christ. We're going to see as we get into the next couple chapters. Uh, it, it's, in fact, it's very interesting. He spends that, he's very, uh, this whole chapter, this, all, everything that we read today, the last uh, part of, sev- really all of chapter 7, talking about marriage. And its role for the believer. It's very straightforward. It's linear. And then the very next verse, and it's kind of funny to me because remember, these letters weren't written in chapters and verse. And at the very first uh, verse of chapter eight says this: "Now concerning things offered to idols." We know that we have all knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And he starts talking about meat and idols. And I'm like, what? What a? Where's the connection there? And I like it because here's what I picture. Here's Paul sitting there with his letter from Corinth asking questions. He's already referred to it. You know, these things that you ask me about in your letter, I'm going to do my best to answer them. So he sees one on marriage. He sees one on virgins. He sees one on sexual immorality. And he addresses all this stuff. Okay, I've said everything I need to say. What's next? What about meat sacrificed to idols? Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, it's just a... it just makes this whole thing so much more vivid to me. It's, it becomes three-dimensional when I see Paul praying, reading, and responding, responding to these things by the Spirit of God. But what we're going to see is this uh, self-denial and this love, love for one another and love for Christ that is going to dictate the choices we make. He's saying we don't always have to know every little thing because God gave us a conscience and a conscience that is guided by god is a sure way of living your life in a manner that's going to please god and that's going to make a a difference for the a positive difference for the kingdom of god and all of that is leading up to what first corinthians chapter 11 where we talk about the lord's supper first corinthians chapter 12 where we talk about spiritual gifts 13, which is the love chapter, 14, where he talks specifically about tongues and interpretation. All of those things are together talking about unity, oneness in the body of Christ. And it's exciting stuff. But all these things really do, even though he does seem to be shifting subjects, they are all tied together in this message of unity and love. Go ahead and stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ.